Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who may be as synonymous with Pittsburgh as French fries on salad or Sunday morning breakfast at Pamela's. He was voted Pittsburgh Magazine's Best of the Berg 2018 Local Author of the Year. He has written, I believe, 26 books, most centering around the Steel City sports teams. His latest work is as a co-author of a great new book, Unlucky 21, The Saddest Stories and Games in Pittsburgh Sports History. It is a pleasure to welcome the man who also wrote... Uh, roll out the Stonies, the history of Stonies beer. So that's a pretty cool book as well. The one and only David Finoli to WLIE 540M Sports Talk New York. Welcome, David. Well, thank you. Glad to be on. You know, it should be noted that you're a co-author of this book, and officially the book's authors are listed on the cover as the Association of Gentlemen Pittsburgh Journalists. So I assume none of you <laughs> have had your hard passes taken away lately. <laughs> <laughs> we we have not we have no. not it's it's a good group of guys most of whom uh, uh, attended Duquesne University with me right so the list is pretty impressive of thirteen journalists to be exact how did this collaboration come about well I was looking for my next project um, I was talking to uh, Tom Rooney um, um, and we were just kind of batting around ideas he uh, came up with um, an idea about something on the uh, on the saddest. Uh, uh, experiences in Pittsburgh sports, and it brought to mind one of the uh, worst things, which is the inspiration for the book, um, of three of our, our stars in Pittsburgh, all who wore 21, all who died tragically young, um, two of them in heroic manners, uh, Michelle Briere, Roberto Clemente, and uh, Hall of Famer Archie Vaughn. Um, so we, um, we were toying around with the idea, developed a table of contents, and um, um, then we, uh, I, I thought it'd be a neat thing to kind of go around with some of the uh, friends I had made over the years and uh, see if they'd be willing to collaborate uh, in this book. Luckily, everybody was more than happy to, and uh, uh, I think uh, the book came out pretty good with, uh, with uh, their uh, uh, analysis of their different subjects. So is there a feeling that of all the sports cities, Pittsburgh has more sad moments than anybody else? Have you looked at any of that or just... Everybody thinks. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm sure if, if you go through every city, I mean, um, they they would be able to come up with with uh, sad stories. But I mean, if you look at uh, some of the things that happen here, I mean, we were the second team in professional sports history to blow a three nothing uh, lead in the series as the the '75 Islanders, led by Chico uh, Resch, came back and beat the Penguins in four straight. Um, what happened in 1992, I still don't like talking much about the, the tragic NLCS with the Atlanta Braves. And uh, who knew that would be a lead into 20 consecutive losing seasons um, at the end of that game, but it was. Um, and certainly the tragic stories with the death of Clemente, who today continues to be uh, the most revered Pittsburgh citizen in the history of the city. Um, every uh, uh, New Year's Eve, at his statue at PNC Park, there are just tons of uh, flowers that are left there in his honor. So, uh, 26 years later, he's still horribly uh, missed. No, it's interesting. Um, so, 
that yeah. that you mentioned in the open uh, about Michelle Briere, and I'm a huge hockey fan, but I really did not know much about Briere until reading this book, and I didn't realize that the Pittsburgh Penguins have only retired two numbers, Mario Lemieux's and Briere's. Could you tell our audience a little bit about Briere? Michelle Briere, he he was not a first round pick. He was he was a smallish player, and he really didn't start. Um, coming on till midway in his rookie year, but man, once he did, he was just magic offensively. Um, I, I know you're a huge Ranger fan, so you know the era was not like the 90s. Scoring was not as uh, pronounced at that point, but um, this kid looked like he had the earmarks of a superstar, and he, he took off in the playoffs, led the Penguins to the Final Four, had the first uh, overtime uh, goal in Penguin history, um, they swept the, the Seals in the first round and, and uh, played, uh, played the Blues tough because of his, uh, his contributions. Then in the offseason, he was driving to his bachelor party in, in Canada and was involved in a horrific uh, auto accident, and I believe he was in a coma for 11 months uh, before he finally sadly passed away. To me, he would have been the Mario Lemieux before there was a Mario Lemieux, and the Penguins would have succeeded an awful lot earlier than they did. Unbelievable. Now, it's interesting, too, because the Pittsburgh Steelers almost lost a number 21 as well as a player on their team, Dion Figures, actually got shot. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it, he was home in Colorado, and uh, um, I believe he was at a party, and uh, it was the offseason, and he, he was uh, shot in uh, what I believe was a drive-by by shooting. And it, it's just a, uh, just a horrific uh, number, and I don't... You know, in, in the uh, chapter, the, the author, Chris Fletcher, who was the former editor and publisher of Pittsburgh Magazine, he, he pleaded with the Steelers to retire the number before something bad happens because they're, <laughs> they're the only professional team that can, they can have a, a number 21. Uh, yeah, one of the chapters you wrote is The Day Pitt Football Died. It's about the 48-14 loss to Penn State and how it had a trickle-down yes. effect on Pittsburgh football. Um, it's also, you know, it, it kind of crosses over two different areas because – uh, it's one of the reasons that Dan Marino's draft status took a fall, so much so yeah. that the Steelers passed on him and put Gabe Rivera, which is another tragic story. So can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about both of those? Well, I, I was at that pit game. That, that pit team, it was the best team in the nation the year before. It won the New York Times uh, Computer National Championship. And had there been a BCS back then, Pitt would have been one of the, the finalists because just about every – computer in, in retrospect uh, put Pitt as the number one team. So they came back, they had lost a lot of players from the team, but still had Danny Marino, who had one of the great years in college football history. They're 10-0, and looking like they're going to just beat the heck out of Penn State. They're up 14 to nothing, driving for another score, and everybody who was there, including myself, knew that if Pittsburgh scores uh, that third touchdown there at the 20 or 25-yard line, something like that, the game's over. Well, Marino throws a uh, goes for a touchdown. The ball gets hung up in the air. Uh, Penn State uh, intercepts it, and they go on to score 48 unanswered points in just was a devastating 48-14 to 14 loss. Penn State wasn't anywhere in the ballpark of, of what Pitt had with talent. And after that, um, they win an exciting Sugar Bowl, but the Jackie Sherrill wants more control of the, the program. They decide, the administration decides they want control of the program. Cheryl leaves, and right now, 30-some 30, uh, uh, 30 years later, 
we're celebrating uh, ACC Coastal Division Championship this year in what is the high moment, uh, a 7-14, and 14, the high moment of the Pitt program since Unbelievable. Uh, that game. So it's, it's been a horrible, horrible run. But anyways, Marino comes back for his senior year, does not play well. Um, he, there, there are rumors that he's using drugs. Right. And also rumors he had uh, a knee injury. So he's supposed to be the top quarterback. He's supposed to be the top quarterback in the draft, but he starts falling. I mean, Ken O'Brien, if I'm not mistaken, was taken ahead of him. Mm-hmm. I think that was the same year. Yes, it was. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. We in New York remember that. I mean, that tells you all you need to know. Yeah, that's going to be in the, the New York tragedy book. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But he falls down. Rooney, uh, Dan Rooney wants him. He wants him. Art Rooney wants him. But they defer to Chuck Knoll. Chuck Knoll's trying to rebuild the Steelers. He wants to rebuild with defense, so he drafts Gabe Rivera. Um, tells Danny that he, it's probably better off he goes somewhere else anyway with the rumors and such. Turns out to be true. He, he goes on to a, just a magnificent career with the Dolphins. And Gabe Rivera, who had just turned the corner and looked like he was going to be a superstar, is, gets drunk at a, at a bar. He's in a small, you know, a huge 300-pound man in a Datsun 280Z, which was a small sports uh, car gets in an accident, flies out the back window, has no seatbelt on, and he ends up uh, being paralyzed, uh, paralyzed for life, unfortunately. Um, and the, the inspiration, I mean, obviously a sad moment, but I read some knucklehead on, on the Internet who was claiming it was the worst draft pick in Pittsburgh Steeler history, which it was not. Um, Rivera, in my mind, would have been a star. He wouldn't have been to Marino's level but he would have been a star in the league. I, I'm, I'm certain of that, uh, uh, just remembering the uh, progress he was making. Um, but unfortunately, he, he, he goes on, actually lives a great life in a wheelchair at, at San Antonio, helping um, uh, needy children in San Antonio, and unfortunately uh, passed away as I was finishing the chapter, um, which kind of brought an even sadder end to that, that story. Absolutely. You know, Pittsburgh also has, has a good history with boxing. Billy Kahn, the original Pittsburgh kid. Michael Mora was yeah. a champion. And then Paul Spatafora, who was the former IBF lightweight champion of the world. Uh, it's pretty interesting yeah. because in reading about him in this book, it's one of those stories that easily, you know, so many movies have been made about boxers or documentaries. I'm su- surprised that there's not more about Paul Spatafora out there. Can you tell our audience about he was the second Pittsburgh kid, but tell Tell us a little bit about him and the tragedy that belied him. Well, he was an amazing boxer. Um, didn't have much power, but, man, his defense was incredible. He had incredible speed. He was undefeated. I really think had that story played out, he would have been definitely in the top two or three in Pittsburgh boxing history, Billy Kahn and Harry Greb probably being one and two. Um, but um, I think he was on – just a road where he was going to become one of the great champions in the country. And he couldn't, uh, he had an alcohol addiction. And he ended up shooting his fiance, getting into trouble. Um, and every time he would seemingly come back, turn the corner, um, alcohol would, would uh, get into his life and he'd get in more trouble. And, and um, right now he just, um, Last I had heard, I believe he's in Punxsutawney now, just getting out of jail not too long ago and trying to um, get his life back together there rather than in Pittsburgh. 
um, on the basis of, you know, every, there are too many bad uh, things here that could trigger his uh, a relapse for him. But I really hope, uh, you know, he turns his life around because it, it really is a story of just a wasted talent because he was incredible. Now, my co-host is going to love this because there's even a story on golf in what the book. What do you mean even a story in golf, Mark? <laughs> Lots of people follow well, golf. I understand yep, that. Not, not you. Hold on. But, you know, th- there's, there's an event coming up, a pay-per-view event coming up on Friday. Okay, but to keep you from Black Friday in the stores. So we'll talk about that later, but let's... But the reason coffee. why I'm saying you'd be happy is that you wouldn't think there'd be a, a tragic... Pittsburgh uh, 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 golf Pittsburgh story. Golf story. Yeah. Okay, so, but this centers yeah. around the 1962 U.S. Open held June 14th through 17th at Oakmont Country Club in Oakmont, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Pittsburgh. Jack Nicholas defeated the 1960 champion Arnold Palmer in an 18-hole Sunday playoff that marked the beginning of their legendary rivalry. Uh, while certainly not tragic, it's a very tough loss for Pittsburgh as it was kind of billed as a homecoming of sorts for Arnold Palmer, correct? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He, he is. Um, I, I have a, a new book I just finished on the top uh, 50 athletes, and he's, he's in, the top, uh, in the top three. And the reason, or he's in the top five, and the reason is he's still revered to this day as one of the great citizens of Western Pennsylvania who tragically uh, died uh, uh, two years ago. Um, but you're right. That was, um, he was coming home. He, he had won in 60 in Cherry Hills on one of the great, if not the greatest, comebacks in U.S. Open uh, uh, history against Nicholas and, and um, Ben Hogan. And after three rounds, it looked like it was his for the taking. Jack Nicholas, who he called the fat kid back then, um, had uh, been a pro for not a long time, but had blown a lot of opportunities. So you were wondering whether his career was going to be nothing but, um, nothing but hype of a guy who keeps choking in big moments. Well, He's, he plays a steady round in the fourth round, but Arnie misses a ton of short putts. Um, no reason he, he should have lost this tournament because in his past, in a clutch situation, that was what Arnie was known for coming through. And, and for whatever reason, he was missing putt after putt. And he's madder in hell. He, he's mad he has to go into a, um, into a playoff. And, of course, not a lot of people show up because it's a Monday. It's a working Monday. Um, not like today where people would just blow off work, as I did in 94 when there was a playoff at Oakmont. Um, but, um, and Nicholas, again, plays a consistent round, goes into a, a nice early lead. Arnie battles back, but then just can't catch him at the end. And, and many people think it was the downfall of Arnie Palmer, which it was. And he ended up winning another Masters and several more tournaments after that. But it certainly was the beginning of Jack Nicholas's story career. And Arnie never got the chance to come back and win because by the time it came to Oakmont again in 73, he was well past his prime and not a, um, not a serious contender at that point. Um, so it, it, this is the tournament at Oakmont is one he, he just desperately wanted and just let it slip away in the, in the fourth round. You know, my father-in-law, who is no longer with us, would tell me that Josh Gibson was the greatest player he ever saw play. The book details how in 1938, when Josh Gibson was only 26 years old in the prime of his career, he, as well as several of the home state grays, including Cool Papa Bell, Satchel Paige, were made available to the, the Pirates, you know, had they chosen to sign them and had they been the team to break the color barrier. You know, you take a look at those names, 
and that would have forever changed the course of Pittsburgh Pirate history. Uh, what can you tell us about that offer and, and who it came from and, and how it was met? It, it came from um, a Pittsburgh Courier sports writer named uh, Chester Washington who was trying to uh, push the um, conversation to get African Americans into, into the game. Um, so in 38, the Pirates had a very good team, actually one of the great collapses in uh, in uh, baseball history that would have made this book if we weren't trying to honor the number 21 uh, with, with the stories in it. But Pittsburgh has a great team, um, high trainer, Archie Vaughn, um, the Wainers, um, and um, he offered these guys to uh, Pirate management. Pie trainer was, uh, uh, actually he was the manager, he wasn't playing at the time. Um, but um, he offers them to um, um, the Pirates, and um, at that point in time, there was no way they would have been allowed to take him. It, it was a lot of it, in my estimation, was trying to posture for to get the conversation going. Um, and I'm sure the Pirates were tempted, but it just wasn't that time where they were going to seriously consider it. But had they taken them, you would be talking about the Pittsburgh Pirates. You're right as the dominant team in that era. The New York Yankees, in my estimation, would have been the best team in the American League, but the Pirates would have been the ones who would have won world championships. Um, Sean Gibson, who uh, heads the Josh Gibson Foundation right now, and um, all of our royalties are going straight to that uh, uh, foundation, along with $2.50 from every book sold at a supermarket, Giant Eagle, who has the exclusive uh, rights to hold the book right now. Um, but he he's... Just a, an incredible amount of information we got from him about his grandfather. I mean, Josh Gibson's always been one of my favorites. And, in fact, I have a, an agreement with my wife that I would name the boys and she would name the girls that we had. <laughs> and we didn't know what the last child was going to be. His name was going to be Josh if it was a boy. Um, ended up being a girl, so it wasn't Josh. But um, it would have been named after Josh Gibson. I just I love the stories about him. I, I think he was. I claim him to be the greatest baseball player in Pittsburgh history over Hannes Wagner. Um, and arguably, he's in the conversation of greatest baseball players of all time. But you, you put that crew together uh, that was offered to them, and there's yeah. no way anybody in the National League competes with them. So tell us a little bit about the foundation and what it does. They help um, kids that uh, uh, need help in, in the city of Pittsburgh. They they have camps that they set up for them free of charge. Um, they help them uh, um, help them with different sports if they're looking that that way. But they also do something that's unique in high school, and they have an agreement with uh, I believe Robert Morris in uh, in Pittsburgh um, in college where they teach courses on kids the business of sports. I mean, let's face it: under one percent of every athlete is ever going to have a chance to be a major league player, a, a professional player. And Sean doesn't want these kids to be stuck trying to live this dream and have no fallback plan. So he teaches them about um, the business of sports, where there are a lot of opportunities right now at this point from that uh, college level and above. And it also translates into um, the business world, uh, that they can use these skills. Um, so he takes them from six years old, five years old, up through college, and just tries to help them redirect their life. And it's just a wonderful organization. He had me up there for 
um, at his offices in the camps for a day. And I'll tell you what, I was I was just so impressed with the work he does. It, it's just an honor to donate uh, everything to it. That's awesome. Uh, obviously, we don't have Giant Eagle here in New York, so if we wanted to get a hold of this book in the New York area, how would we go about it? You would go www.joshgibson.org, and you can buy it through there. Um, they're going to have the online sales until, uh, I believe, mid-March, and then after that it will be on Amazon and in the traditional uh, bookstores. But until then, um, you can buy, get it there, and all, everything he makes on that, again, goes straight to the uh, uh, foundation. So um, you'll be getting a great book and also helping a uh, worthy cause. Yeah, very interesting concept, a very enjoyable book. It, it's, you know, you can le- read it at your leisure. You can go back. It's all different stories. Uh, 13 great different authors and contributors. David, thanks so much for your time tonight. We really appreciate it. Thank you.